Hey guys, just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to Sidebar Forever. If you like the show, please subscribe to us at sidebarforever.com as well as share episodes of the podcast on your social media. That way, new listeners can find us as well. As we were running down the rap sheet of Los Angeles crime movies, Swain and I conspicuously skipped Steven Soderbergh's 1999 cult classic, The Limey. Swain has been a fan of The Limey for years, and since I just recently got around to checking it out myself, we decided to highlight it on its own episode. A tale pulled right out of an old dime novel, The Limey, is about an estranged father's journey for revenge, forgiveness, and ultimately redemption. It stars Terrence Stamp, Luis Guzman, Leslie Ann Warren, and the late Peter Fonda, along with a host of familiar character actors such as Bill Duke and Barry Newman. Directed by Soderbergh, with editing by Sarah Flack, the Limey elevates what could have been a by-the-numbers revenge film into an artful experience about memory and loss. I'm Adrian Johnson. It's just Swain and me biding our time until everything is made clear because that's what prison teaches you as we discuss Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. My name's Wilson. You wrote me about my daughter. This bloke she was bunked up with. Terry Valentine. What's he got to say for himself? You tell him! You tell him I'm coming! Tell him I'm coming! Jenny never told you about her dad. What dad? When I was in prison for nine years, he was released last month. As long as nobody can connect anything to me. Had you heard of the Limey in a big way prior to me kind of talking about it on the show? And were you at all like a fan or, a, you know, someone who uh, enjoyed Soderbergh's work? Um, I can actually, <laughs> I'm going to have a full confession here. This is the mm-hmm. first Soderbergh movie I've ever seen. <laughs> is it really? Yes. I've never seen Out of Sight. I've never seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape. You know, I've never even seen, um, didn't he do, um one of those unsung didn't he do like an oceans 11 or something like that or one of those or yeah he did all the oceans movies he did aaron brockovich oh yeah he did traffic okay so okay i have to take that back i did see traffic okay okay damn i I forgot he did traffic wow okay yeah but in terms of the limey itself (laughs) before you were starting to bring it up once we you know became pals and everything I had only seen the Limey on, like, you know, on VHS, you know, advertisements, you know, before another movie. Like, okay, <laughs> I'll give you a prime example. Um, for a time, T2 
was being distributed by Artisan Entertainment on like um, VHS and DVD. Mm-hmm. That was one of the movies that was in the advertisement <laughs> on, on, <laughs> on the tape, yo. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I um, first heard of the Limey was that way. And then, you know, I never actively sought it out myself. And then you started bringing it up, I'd say, a couple of years ago. It's like, you know, you, you ought to check out the Limey, man, you know. And so now mm-hmm. here we are. And I'm glad I did. Yeah. <laughs> that movie actually, so Out of Sight came out before it. Well, I guess really talking a little bit about Soderbergh's career, Sex, Lives, and Videotapes was his first movie, and it was an indie movie. And, you know, he got a lot of buzz and kind of became an indie darling. Then he had a couple of flops after that, and then he did Out of Sight, which wasn't a huge hit. But I think it made, it made like $30 million, but people really liked the performances. They liked the movie, the way it was uh, the way it was shot, the way it was put together. Yeah, and Clooney was on the rise, too. That didn't hurt either, you know? Well, well, he wasn't quite on the rise. This was actually, and this was part of what it was, is he was trying to become a film actor and break out of his TV kind of, uh, you know, people's uh, ideas of him as a TV star only. yeah. And he had done the Peacemaker and some other things that didn't work prior to this. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he did Out of Sight, people were like, oh, wow, he's actually a film star. He's actually a movie star. The people could kind of see him as that. And that kind of launched him into the other things that he kind of did after that. And similarly, I think for Jennifer Lopez, you know, she had done smaller parts. Um, you know, Selena, you know, she carried that movie. But, you know, it's, you know, Um and I think she may have done um, U-Turn at that point. Yes, yes. With Sean Penn and Oliver Stone. That's right. That's right. And she was a fly girl, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so even then, she kind of got, like, credibility, oh, as an actress. And, you know, and then you had, like, Michael Keaton and, you know, Ving Rhames and uh, Albert Brooks and uh, Don Cheadle, you know, whose star was on the rise at that time. Um, so you did have a lot of things going on, but... Yeah, for anyone who's who's not seen it, uh, and today we're, we're we're discussing the Limey. Adrian and I did a uh, uh, an interrogation of uh, L.A. crime movies together. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and we kind of specifically skipped the Limey because it was a movie that I wanted to discuss uh, in full mm-hmm. on the podcast. So here here we are. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, it was released in 1999, probably one of the greatest years in movies. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, quite a few awesome films came out in 1999. This was one of them, although it, you know, it doesn't compare in terms of box office for, uh, you know, for mm-hmm. anything like Fight Club or Matrix or something like that. Yeah. But uh, the movie was uh, written by a guy named Lim Dobbs and directed by Steven Soderbergh. Um, and it stars Terrence Stamp, Louise Guzman, Leslie Ann Warren, uh, the late Peter Fonda, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Duke, Barry Newman. Yeah. Uh, Melissa George, uh, Nikki Cat, mm-hmm. and uh, and Amelia Heinley. And the short kind of synopsis of the movie is, is uh, Terrence Stamp plays a, a guy called Wilson. He's a uh, he's obviously British, but he's a career criminal, and he's been in and out of prison most of his adult life. Uh, the last stint was for nine years, and his his daughter, he hasn't seen her in a decade, and she apparently moves to the States and moves to L.A. and starts, you know, trying to become an actress. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and while she's here, she dies in a car accident. And so he comes to the States to get information to find out what really happened to her. And it ultimately ends up being him like, you know, he's kind of like this British steamroller just kind of running through uh, L.A. County, um, you know, trying to find out what happened to his daughter, Jenny. It's anyway, it's it's a it's a great it's a great movie for me. There aren't a lot of movies in the last 10, 20 years. Not a ton of them that have what I would call, you know, where there are scenes where you like, oh, I like this part. Oh, I like that part. You know, oh, I can't wait for this part to come up, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those movies, even though it's not an action movie and it's not a movie with big set pieces, it has some. Yeah. But it has some scenes that I really liked. But I wanted to ask you, since you watched it, you know, fresh and, you know, had had nothing, you know, to uh, to judge it against. What were some of the scenes in the movie that stood out to you, man? Oh, man, Qu- quite a few, actually, quite a few. Um, if I can comment, first of all, on the editing. I remember telling you after I, immediately after I saw it, man, just how the editing seemed so lyrical, you know, like mm-hmm. the editing didn't match up to the dialogue, so to speak. You know, it was almost like a voiceover, you know, as Wilson is coming over and he goes to um, Luis Guzman's house. You know, what, what was his character's name? What was... um. Eduardo. Yeah, yeah. So he goes over to his house and says, you sent me a letter, you know, and he was like, somebody had to. I felt like I needed to. And all the time, it's like that their conversation is almost a voiceover as Wilson is kind of reflecting almost or, you know, it seems that way. Like he's piecing stuff together, you know, remembering his daughter, remembering her as a child, the plain ride over and everything so i thought that was great first and foremost you know what i'm saying mm. like it felt natural instead of jarring you know um as far as particular scenes oh man oh man um the part where he goes to peter fonda's house um <laughs> yes and he's fighting track that that whole thing you know what that reminded me of <laughs> what it reminded me almost of believe it or not it reminded me of almost like like uh, comic book panels in a sense. Like there's one part where yes, 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 yeah. Like like Peter Fonda's uh, uh, girlfriend just, is just getting out the shower and she goes to catch a, a phone call. She's sitting on the edge of the bed, and you know Wilson is kind of stalking around, just trying to find what 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 what's, what what's this dude up to? Let me just see if I can find anything. You know what I'm saying? And you just see like the edge of his face peeking around the corner. And you know it's Terrence Stepp because Terrence Stepp has that angular, almost diamond-shaped profile. Yeah. And he's just out of focus, but you know it's him. And it takes you a second out of the corner of your eye to see his profile. You're looking at her, and then you just see like this irritation out of the corner. Of your... Oh, that's Wilson. Oh, wow. I like how they framed that. That's great. Yeah. And then... She takes the phone call and now she turns in his direction. He's he's backed out, you know, and then also that same part where he's going around the house and everything. I love how everything is framed within door frames, within windows, you know, and it makes use of California, like the California sun, that sunny, you know, California climate. You know, you know, he's having a nice party, a nice spread at this place. And Wilson sees Peter Fonda through the window. It's like, there's my target right there. You know, so he's almost like running through, mm-hmm. you know, and you're not sure if like, if he's imagining that at first, like, 
I'm, I'm, I'm gonna shoot this dude. You know, what I'm saying, you see, right. you see him shoot Peter Fonda, <laughs> but you know he doesn't. You see him think about it again, but then he doesn't. And all the time he's approaching him and everything. So that whole thing, even to the point where, you know, spoilers, where he throws like one of uh, Peter Fonda's henchmen <laughs> off the balcony, and just, just so quick and just like, <clears throat> like <clears throat> out of my way, just whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yep. <laughs> and again, it being California and those type of like, you know, Hollywood Hills type of parties, everyone almost at first takes it as like a joke. Like, oh, he, he must have had too much to drink and fell off. Oh, my God. Is someone dead down there? You know, <laughs> it's crazy. I was like, that's probably how they would act. It's like, is this a joke? You know, and that gives time for Wilson and Eduardo to get out of there. You know what I'm saying? He's like, point the car downhill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a nice touch. Angle it downhill. <laughs> yes, exactly. And just, oh, man, it was just so good, man. It was just so good. You know, and um, God, man, just, just so many. The, the other one, if, if I can, if I can um, say, True. when he first True. goes to the warehouse, uh, Terry Valentine, to find out who is Terry Valentine, you know, and... He approaches like the manager there, and it's like these three, these three just just goons, you know, uh, purportedly, you know, just warehouse workers, but just goons, you know what I'm saying? And they got Wilson hemmed up, you know what I'm saying? And and I loved how they didn't do any type of like big to do as like you know any extra special effects or foley's. Like he's getting punched in the gut. It should sound like he's getting punched in the gut. Just oof, oof, right. No, you know what I'm saying? Right. I think that really helped the scene to make it seem more, more, um, more brutal. So that way, when they toss him out on his ass, it's like, stay the fuck out. You know, Wilson gets up, dusts himself off, takes that revolver that he had on him. <laughs> he just strides <laughs> back in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yo. It just starts capping. And I, and I love... And not many people use this type of thing, you know, anymore in film where we don't have to go into the back into the room with him because we already know what it looks like from earlier. Right. So he goes back in and we see from the outside he's shooting. You know what I'm saying? And we see the, the one dock worker. There was a fourth guy there, a young guy. He comes running out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and Wilson comes out. Tell them I'm coming. I'm coming. Tell them I'm coming. Man. I was like, this dude, this is, ah, oh, this is awesome. This is awesome, man. You know, and, and one comment, the other comment I'll say about that, I wonder if, in a way, if the limey and that whole, did it, because there's, it's like, it's at the precipice of like those Liam Neeson movies that are going to start in the next decade in the 2000s of, mm -hmm. Old man action movies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, yeah. old man comes in to Cleese house. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. And I think the limey in its way, and it's not like those movies. No way. No how. But, you know, in that this older guy is the protagonist and he's able to acquit himself, you know, very capably to get to the ends that he's looking for. You know what I'm saying? And I think Terrence Stamp was a great fit for that. So that those scenes right there really showed um, um, his his range. 
And I'm thinking of one more. I'm sorry to hog, man. One more. The parts where Wilson was reflecting on his daughter and how as both of us being fathers, you know, I don't know about you, Mm -hmm. but I I really felt those parts. You know what I'm saying? I think had I Mm -hmm. seen that when I was younger, I probably would have felt differently because I, at the time of release, I definitely wasn't a father as of yet. You know, but mm-hmm. now that I am, it's like, man, that that really, really hit me, especially, um, especially, you know, in, in the in the tender part, man, in the heart, man, for real. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Me as well. Me as well. And uh, and saying, you know, now I think about it very differently than I did when I watched it, you know, in my uh, probably my late 20s, maybe 30 years old. Yeah. You know, somewhere around that uh, that range. But. Um, what Adrian is referring to uh, when he's talking about uh, Wilson going to the cocktail party. So Wilson and Eduardo kind of crashed this party to kind of see what's up. Yeah. Um, and, and in a weird way, if you watch the movie, uh, Luis Guzman plays Eduardo. He's kind of like Robin to Wilson's Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Almost mm-hmm. like his sidekick in a way and and and, and kind of the moral voice. You know, to Wilson, hey, don't do that. No, 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 you can't. You know, like trying to, you know, trying to, you know, advise him. And Wilson is just like, no. You know, uh, I came to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum. Bubble gum, gum yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they crashed. They crashed this party, and that house is in Big Sur. That's where. Uh, that's where the house is, where the where the big swanky party is, and this fabulous pool. Yeah. With this view that's to die for, and then the house is is just amazing. But, um, yeah, for me, man, like, oddly enough, like you said, when he sits down to talk with Eduardo and, you know, tell me about Terry, and who's this, this chap that she's, she's, she's backed up with, you know, and, um, you know, and then, um, and the whole time Eduardo's telling him, yeah, she died in a car crash. And he's like, he didn't believe it. Wilson just didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Then when he meet later on, when he meets Elaine and Elaine is like, um, was his daughter, Jenny's, uh, acting teacher that she met in Los Angeles. And uh, and Elaine is kind of like uh, an older actress who's she's a bit of kind of a bit of a tragic figure. She's kind of, you know, she's got posters in her house. You can tell, you know, as we mentioned in the previous episode about L.A. crime movies, like her best days are behind her. She works as an acting teacher. She works as an acting coach to children on movies and in, and in commercials and whatnot. But she's not getting any kind of real character parts or feature parts anymore. And she teaches acting in this workshop. But, you know, when he meets her. And, and, and even like you were saying, you know, there are portions of, of this conversation, this story that he tells her, and it's spread out in three different ways. So the audio stays consistent, but you hear him telling the story while they're walking in like an outside mall. Yeah. Then you see him telling the story like I think they're in a maybe in a restaurant or at a bar or something. And then you see him telling the same story in her apartment. And so the audio is, is consistently the same. So you can follow the story, but you see him in, in these different environments. But I love that. I love the cocktail party scene. I love the, the like you said, the kind of dream montage of if I was going to kill him, I'd do it this way. Shoot yes. him in the arm. Shoot him in the chest. You know, shoot him. He fall. You know, just everything. You know, shoot him in the yeah. head. And the back of his head just explodes. And, um, and there's a scene in the party where Terry Benedict and some other people are having, like, you know, party BS chit chat. And you can see the window, as Adrian was saying, framed in the background. You see Wilson out on the on the uh, the uh, out on this 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 deck by the pool, yeah. And they're way up high, 
and uh, and and Terry Benedict or Terry Valentine's uh, bodyguard comes out to see who we, who he is, and to, and and you don't hear anything. You just see him walk up the bodyguard Larry walk up to Wilson. Wilson grabs him by the lapel, yep. headbutts him, and then tosses his ass <laughs> over the uh, over the balcony <laughs> to his death, and then straightens up his tie, and then pimps out of there. <laughs> and uh, and it was like wow. And I found out from we have a listener. I he may be Scottish. I forget his name. I apologize. He uh, I posted uh, an image from the Limey on us on our uh, on our social media for the yeah. podcast. And he said that he said a headbutt is it over in uh, in Western Europe is known as a Glasgow kiss. <laughs> That's what they call it. He said he gave him a Glasgow kiss. Boom. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but I love that scene and I love the exchange. Of course, the the most incredible turned up to to level eleven scene in the movie is the exchange that he has with Bill Duke as the uh, D, as the DEA agent. Oh, that was oh that was great. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh man, that was that that was like two professionals, two old two old guns just yes. verbally going at it, man. Oh man, they were great in that. And that and that monologue he gives where and then Bill Duke is just sitting there just like mm-hmm. stone faced and it's like, you know what I don't understand. How you doing then? Alright, are you? Now look, Squire. You're the governor here, I can see that. I'm on your manor now. So there's no need to get your niggas in a twist. Whatever this bollocks is that's going down between you and that slag Valentine, it's got nothing to do with me. I couldn't care less. Alright, mate? Let me explain to you. When I was in prison, second time, uh no, tell a lie, third stretch. There was this screw what really had it in for me, and that geezer was top of my list. Two years after I got sprung, I sees him in Ola Park. He's sitting on a bench feeding bloody pigeons. There was no one about. I could have gone up behind him and snapped his fucking neck. Wallop. But I left him. I could have nobbled him, but I didn't. Because what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. I didn't give a toss. It didn't matter, see? This burg on the bench wasn't worth my time. It meant sod all in the end, because you've got to make a choice. When to do something and when to let it go. When it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you, if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear and you can act accordingly. And, and in a weird way, Bill Duke has been in, I believe, at least one other uh, Soderbergh uh, film, maybe two. Okay. In a weird way, he kind of slightly reprised his role from Minister Society. Yes, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, because I was waiting on him to say, "Okay, so you know you fucked up, right? See, you're right you right there. You fucked up, right? You know you fucked up, right? See, you fucked up. See, you fucked. You know you fucked up, right?" But, uh, but that's when Wilson says, you know that that line where he says, you know, he tells that long story. This screw, what got it in for me? And he goes through the whole thing and he says, he says, but bide your time and everything is made clear. That's what prison teaches you. And that's when he, he makes that statement. But I love that scene. And then even though the shootout at Terry Benedict, at Terry, keep wanting to call him Terry Benedict, at Terry <laughs> Valentine's house, Terry Benedict is a character from the Oceans movie. That's why I keep making that mistake. Okay. <laughs> uh, the shootout at Valentine's house it's not like, you know, lethal weapon or it's not like an yeah. action movie shootout. 
but you just knew every all the bad guys are going to catch. They're going to yes. catch it. They're going to catch strays. We knew that. We knew nothing was going to happen to Wilson other than maybe like a flesh wound, if even that. Yeah. And we knew emotionally, we knew that eventually he's going to get to Terry Valentine and finally find out the truth about what happened to his daughter, Jenny, and how she died. And um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't know. I love those scenes in the movie, man. You were talking about uh, how the movie is is uh, is played. So Lim Dobbs is the screenwriter and he and he and Soderbergh have collaborated before. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. They've uh, a couple other movies or at least one other one. I think it's called Kafka. It wasn't a success. I think they collaborated. You remember Haywire with Gina Carano? Yeah. Yeah. That's Soderbergh. He directed it or produced it? He directed it, it and Lim Dobbs wrote it. What? Yeah, yeah. Damn, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dang. But, uh, but so they collaborated before, but so, like, it, the director's commentary on the DVD is hilarious because it's those two. Yeah. And Dobbs, apparently Dobbs' original screenplay was very straightforward a straightforward narrative. It was, you know, something right out of the pages of an old paperback novel. Yeah. Um, and, and, and everything was fairly uh, chronological in terms of the story and how the story unfolds. And the, the commentary on the DVD literally starts with them arguing. <laughs> really? Yes. Arguing. Like, like not even as a joke. Like le- legit arguing. <laughs> like, yeah, and he's pissed off at Soderbergh and, you know, you, you hacked my script to pieces and lifted parts out that were important. And, you know, when the movie came out, you've seen the movie. When the movie came out, I mean, it has a very high rating with critics and with fans, but the criticisms that it got was is there's hardly any script there. That's a lazy, simple, nothing script. Yeah. And Dobbs was offended by that. He was pissed off that people <laughs> thought he turned in some bullshit script when it was way more than it was. So they're arguing and, and back and forth and eh, that's that. And Soderbergh is telling him, you know, why he did it. And he's like, yeah, but and uh, and he, he tells Dobbs at one point, he says, uh, he says, when are you going to direct, Lim? When are you going to direct? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and there's a uh, apparently there's a scene that was cut from the movie. So the house that Terry Benedict is in. Terry Valentine. It's actually, ter- ter- God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> the house that Valentine is in is uh, his ex-wife's house. And, and actually they had cast Anne Margaret to play his ex-wife. Oh, that would have been so on the nose. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfection, you know, but they pull that part out of the movie and, uh, and, you know, and that was one of Dobbs' big points. He was like, you know, this was a crucial part of the, you know, of the storytelling, the background or whatever. And he said, okay, I, I've got the scene, Lim. I, I'll just send it to you. You can let, have it and you can watch it forever if you want. You know, I mean, they they just famously <laughs> butted heads, you know, because the screenplay was, you know, how, how it was edited and how it was put together. It just doesn't resemble at all, you know, what Lim Dobbs uh, – you know what he, you know what he foresaw for the, uh, you know, for the final product. And I would imagine there's probably other stories that you can think of where, you know, every screenwriter, you know, sees a movie in, in their head that, and the director is just going to see something different. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you know that that's like that's like one of those things where they have to 
collude. Now, you do have some directors who are just so overpowering, you know, right. by their storytelling or their stylistic choices, their aesthetic, to where it's just like, yeah, the screenwriter is almost just lucky that they, they got paid for writing something, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to yeah. put it that way, you know, because yeah. everyone wants to see their contribution, make it to the screen. You know what I'm saying? Key, key points of dialogue that took them months to, you know, whittle down and boil down to this one piece, you know, might be tossed out or whatnot. But yeah, man, that's um, that, that's so crazy. But I think the movie to 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 me, it works the better for it, because, you know, before we started um, recording and I was mentioning that, you know, one of one of the things that I enjoyed about the line is that it's very compact. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's very little wasted fat, you know. There's very little, you know, um, um, of scenes to where, you know, we're going off on this, you know, secondary thing. It's like, no, it's just like Wilson himself. One track, you know, we meet interesting characters that kind of come into the mix, mm -hmm. but it never derails off that one track, that mission that Wilson has. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would agree 1,000%. And, and, and part of the reason for, for that, because um, I was watching an interview with, with Soderbergh and actually with the, uh, the editor of the film, Sarah Flack. Okay. And, um, and so they did, in, in 2019, they did a 20th anniversary of the movie and did a recut of it. and Not a recut of it, but a remaster of it. Oh. Um, and then did, you know, and, and Soderbergh did a series of interviews, you know, not many, but he did some interviews just talking about the film, which he said he hadn't seen in 19 years. He hadn't seen it since, you know, since it was made mm -hmm. and, and kind of just an aside, kind of one of the cool things about him is, you know, he apparently he's a very smart guy and he's, he's a big fan of film. Um, he, he, he's prolific. He likes making movies like basically every 18 months he likes making a movie, you know? Um, and when he does press for his films, you know, my understanding is he generally doesn't like them back to back to back, mm -hmm. you know, like in, in, in a junket sense. And if he's talking to, you know, someone obviously not like a entertainment tonight or whatever, but if he's talking to an outlet that specializes in film, or if he's talking to a film critic or whatever, he will only talk for a minimum of an hour. Mm. So he really wants to get into it. Yeah. He doesn't want it to be this five, which is awesome, you know, that you could spend that amount of time with it. Yes. Um, but anyway, the 2019, the anniversary edition, and he's doing interviews, and he said that the first cut of the movie was more traditional to the screenplay, and he said they screened it, and they watched it, and he said it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. He said it did not work. And so he and Sarah Flack went back to the uh, to the editing bay and they started recutting the movie. And his idea was, I think there's a movie called uh, Year at Marion Bad. There's a couple other films that deal with kind of like memory and dreams and within the framework of the narrative. Yeah. So they wanted to approach it as that. So they reshot a little bit. You know, of, you know, scenes of Wilson looking contemplative in the airplane, you know, by himself and things like that, you know, and interspersed those those in there and then started recutting the movie. Mm -hmm. It became an effort, an, an effort on their parts to have the movie feel like what uh, be, to be like memory play. 
Mm. Like, mm. so that's why, like, the scenes where a scene runs and the audio keeps going, but then new images come on, and then another image may come on, and there's no audio to that. It's just the sound of the ocean, which is kind of a recurring thing. Um, and the idea that Sarah Flax said, she said, was that, you know, with memories, uh, oftentimes when you think back on something, you think a little before when something happened, you think, you know, forward in time, you think backwards in time. Sometimes you mix imagination and fantasy in. Sometimes voices don't match in your head the way that uh, the voice of the actual person. So when you're thinking back in memory, it is kind of a, a, of a, a bit of a mess and there's a lot of overlap. And so that's what they wanted to capture. So in watching the movie this time, now I kind of realize, and I knew the scene that we see on him on the airplane in the beginning was not him coming to America. That was him going back to England. Ah. And he's actually thinking about his life. He's thinking about his relationship with his daughter and what was missed. He's thinking about the people that he met on this, this time while he was in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, he's thinking back on everything that's happened. And even the scenes where they do the flashbacks with Jenny as a child, and, you know, it's seen almost like in this weird kind of a trippy kind of a, a Kodak film. You know, it's it's seen in a particular way. That's how we kind of they're saying they kind of you know, Sarah Flack said we kind of think about memories in that way. You know, like there's an Instagram filter for this portion of your life. There's an Instagram filter for that portion of your life. You know, this portion may look even differently to you. So they wanted to cra- capture all of that. And I thought that was really interesting. I didn't catch all of that at first when I've watched the movie years ago. Mm-hmm. But watching it now, I was like, oh, yeah. So the whole thing is really him thinking back on everything. Um, but what did you think, man? That warehouse scene <laughs> was just uh, when he grabbed dude's hand and pushed his face into the thing, into the into the desk. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that I really loved about that was. Terrence Stamp looks like a fairly, like he's intense the whole movie, but he does have the a physical presence. Yes. But the fact that he's been in and out of prison tells me he knows how to be ruthless. He knows how to handle himself. He knows how to fuck you up quick. Mm-hmm. And I and that part translated for me very well. Where I was like, damn, he is handling this motherfucker. <laughs> you know. <laughs> But anyway, what did you think about the inner uh, the interspersing of the old footage of Terrence Stamp? And it comes from uh, a film from 1967 called Poor Cow. Okay. But what did you think about that as a use for flashbacks? And how did you think it was effective? Because that was the thing I think I've talked about the most on the podcast in the past. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought it was it was perfect. It was perfect, you know, because it because exactly just how you described a moment ago, how we have certain filters thinking back, you know, to certain times in our lives. His filter would have been <laughs> 35 millimeter. <laughs> 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 and, and to see a young him, it, it was it was cool. It was cool. In fact, it put me in the mind of um, 
late last year, um, I had gotten a free trial to uh, the Criterion Channel, the streaming service, right? Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I was I was just blowing through them. And I came across this movie that Terrence Stamp was in, also in 67 or 68, called Toby Dammit. <laughs> Toby Dammit. <laughs> I was like, okay, and it was it, it's like it's by Federico uh, Fellini, mm-hmm. very weird movie, but it was it was like okay, but the thing was I had never seen Terrence Stamp young like that. Yeah. I had seen him yeah. younger in terms of the Superman movies, but I had never seen him without a beard, you know, really really young, you know, and right. spry. So that footage that they used for um, the Limey from that old movie. Yeah, it was it was on point and it really synced up to him, you know, having memories of, you know, Jenny as a child, because we see his flashback to her, you know, holding the phones like if you leave again, I'm gonna call the police, right. you know, and we kind of see like an indication of him. We might see a stand in, obviously, you know, the, the hand of a stand in or their their leg. Right, right. You know. To kind of match it up, you know what I'm saying? There's a presence in front of this little girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in that way, they they really adroitly, you know, interspersed that footage, you know, and I thought that was great. It, it was even, it, it really enriched, you know, the film and Wilson's character even more to me, for sure. Yeah, I, I agree a thousand percent, man. I think he, um, he probably had to be close to 40 when he shot uh, Superman 2. Yeah. And so, you know, 20 something years later, he's 60, you know, in, in the Limey in 1999 or whatever. Um, and now that makes sense. I had I have no memory of him prior to right. being Zod in Superman 2. You know, that's it for me. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you see him as a younger man, you realize how I mean, he was a beautiful guy. I mean, just this kind of uh, angelic face and this dark hair and these dark eyes and like you said, he has that kind of diamond-shaped head even then with the kind of a jawline, yeah, angular jawline. So, I mean, it was it was all of those things uh, for sure. But, um, you know, another thing, the the, and again, you know, after having watched the movie several times and watching it again recently in preparation for this talk, so the character of Jenny, you know, we see her as an adult dealing with Terry Bennett, dealing Terry with Terry Valentine. Yes. And then we see her as a child uh, with with Wilson and she finds out, obviously, that Wilson is a criminal and that he's breaking the law when she's a kid. And like you said, she's got the phone. I'm going to call the cops on you. I'm going to call the cops. And when Wilson finally makes his big attack at, at the house at Big Sur and he chases Terry Benedict and Benedict falls and hurts his ankle. And he says, tell me about Jenny. Tell me about Jenny. And, and, and then Valentine starts telling him, you know, that she found out about his drug de- drug laundering or laundering the drug money. Money laundering. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and he's like, you know, he started shaking her and then she broke her head, broke her neck. Mm. And then his uh, his uh, his security guy, Avery, played by Barry, uh, Barry Newman, you mm. know, they put the body in the car and made it look like she went off a cliff or whatever. And he said, yes, she kept telling me, you know, I'm going to go to the cops. I'm going to tell on you. And then Wilson realizes, oh, shit. You know, this was the same thing she told me as a child. I created this kind of a person who, you know, is just totally intolerant of any kind of ill doing. And now I played a part in her death. Yeah. And I was like, 
oh shit because that really that blew over my head you know the first time i watched the movie i didn't i didn't see i didn't you know i didn't see i didn't catch any of that mm -hmm. but now i'm like oh yeah you know this idea and that's why i mentioned earlier i think i mentioned earlier that it, it does kind of become about forgiveness and like redemption and like dealing with loss you know and him realizing you know okay there's nothing that I can do. I help contribute to this. It's, you know, I'm I'm as much a fault at fault as Terry Valentine is, you right? Know, for for what's happened to my kid, and I missed the last decade of her life, you know, because I was I was locked up doing a bid. Yeah, and I thought that denouement to the story was far more satisfying than some, you know, drag out him choking, you know, Terry Valentine, the waves of Big Sur. You you did this. <laughs> You know, just the realization that upon reflections, like, yeah. And I, I did kind of catch that, but you really um, elaborated elaborated upon it perfectly to explain why. They, they have a couple of shots of Jenny as a child holding the phone. Grown Jenny holding that phone, you know, saying she was going to go to the cops. So I got that kind of connection. But mm -hmm. the way you explained it, it's like, yeah, that's why I got that connection. You know what I'm saying? Between those yeah. two shots. Yeah. 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 I, I I mean, I think again would it probably have been okay if if they had played the film like a straight up, you know, uh pulpy revenge story or whatever? No. Maybe, maybe not. This was way more interesting to me and way more artful, mm -hmm. you know, as as an experience. And then also too, I like the fact that apparently one of the uh, one of the other big counters uh, between Soderbergh and uh, Lim Dobbs is, you know, Soderbergh said, "I just want to focus on this guy and his daughter. Like everything else is kind of secondary. I just really want to focus on this guy and his daughter, as opposed to all these other things." And that's why he he ended up editing, and you know, he and Sarah Flack ended up taking a lot of stuff out, and like you said trimming it down to whatever needed to be there that's what was there and they talked about too the uh the kind of off-kilter kind of editing style they said it took many 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 passes to figure out what was the best what was too many times what was not enough times to have things kind of overlap and not play straightforward mm -hmm. they said they had to do that over and over and over again to find you know the the, the best rhythm and I would imagine even today, if he watched, if Soderbergh watched the movie, he probably still would be like, "Ah, that was too much, or this was not enough, or whatever the case may be." Of course. But um, but you know what you were mentioning earlier, and I didn't get a chance to comment on it, but when he goes back into the warehouse after the uh, the goons kicked his ass and tossed him out, yeah, it was almost more frightening not seeing what was going on and just hearing the shots and the screams. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. I mean, yeah. literally, for for anyone who's not seen the movie, you see the character get tossed out in front of this warehouse. And like Adrian said, you see the frame of the bay door. And then he gets up, shakes himself off, pulls this revolver out of his back pocket, walks back into the dark warehouse. And all you're seeing is just the the doorway. And you hear, bow, 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 you know, and he is just popping caps in asses. You don't see it. You just hear it. And then you see this young kid come running out. And you see Wilson come out behind him with a spray of blood on his face. And he says, I'm coming. You tell him, 
I'm fucking coming. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, and the fact that pays off later on, too, when um, the guy is telling, um, when um, Terry Valentine's henchman is saying, yeah, um, one, one of the guys got away, and we see a freeze frame of that kid running out of the warehouse. That's <laughs> yeah. The, you better run for us, run for us, run. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay, so that paid off. And, and and that's a great that's a great thing about, you know, film. It's like a masterful director or someone who's very confident in their craft to yeah. take, you know, um, a piece like that and being able to pay that off later in a film. Not in a major way, but in a piece that makes sense to let another character know who wasn't there what happened. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So it really connects those those storylines. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 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 Um, as we wrap up, man, um, so The Limey was, I think it had a $10 million budget and it maybe did $3 million worldwide. So it was not a success. Mm. Um, but again, it is very high on most critics, uh, you know, lists. Uh, it has a very high Rotten Tomatoes score. And a lot of people, despite its lack of success at the box office really do consider it to be, you know, Soderbergh's best film, one of his best films. Mm. Um, and he's done some great ones, but I mean, it's one of his best films and, and definitely the kind of movie that he's known for. He's, he's very much a one for them, one for me kind of a director now, you know, where he realizes, okay, give me some movie stars and give me a genre movie and I'll do it my way. And then I'll go over here and make this, this smaller passion project. That's my own thing. And he's very much, not in the writer sense in a tour, but like he did that movie uh, Lucky Logan with Daniel Craig and uh, Adam Driver. Damn, he did that too. Holy he did shit! That. He did. He did Magic Mike. No way! Are you serious? Yes. Yes. Damn. He directed Magic Mike, and then he's directed a bunch of stuff that you've never heard of that was not successful too. <laughs> you know, it's like. Wow! Oh yeah. man, that's so. He's crazy. very prolific, but he did a movie. I think maybe the Good German. He did a movie with uh, Matt Damon. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know the Good German. Was it the Good German or Good? No, no. I'm thinking of two different movies: the Good Shepherd or the Good German. Cause I remember two movies like that. I may be confused. Okay. I may be confused, but he did a movie with Damon. Yes. And supposedly the story was in the town where they were shooting. Like they, you know, they, you know, like you know, every couple of days they would go out for, for drinks after the, you know, after shooting or whatever, and then, you know, go back to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And Damon says Soderbergh would go to the bar with his laptop while he was drinking and edit dailies. That's awesome. That's and great. And then turn the laptop around and say, look at this. What do you think of that? That's great. Like he's that dude. <laughs> and same thing with uh, that movie, Lucky Logan, that he did. He, um... He told the studio, he said, let me cut the trailer. And he tried to cut the trailer in a way because he wanted to. This is obviously at a time where certain kinds of movies are not being made by big studios. So he was trying to cut the trailer so that it would appeal. Like we were talking about with Jackie Brown, where it would appeal to a more uh, adult audience and specifically a Southern audience. Because that's what the characters, they're all, you know, from the South. These kind of, okay, you know, redneck criminal types or whatever. Anyway. He's an auteur in that way, but not necessarily as a writer. He's he's written a few things. He wrote Sex Lives and Videotapes. And uh, he's co-written on a couple of other things. But he's not written much. And he, he always he's honest enough with himself to say, he says, I'm, a, I'm an okay writer. 
But, you know, these people are much better at it than I am, you know, the, the professional screenwriters. And I think also, too, the thing for him as well is as much as he probably respects guys like David O. Russell or, uh, you know, other writer-directors, I'm sure he respects them. But the reality is, is if you're writing and you're directing a movie, you can only make a movie every four or five years. Yeah. At best. Mm-hmm. And he wants to make a movie seemingly every 18 months to two years, like every 18 months to two years. He wants to put one out, you know, you know, that's very interesting. He's almost like um, it's, you know, I understand what you're saying about him, perhaps not being an auteur in that he creates everything from whole cloth himself, you know, both mm-hmm. from the writing and, and the uh, directing end. But there are some directors who have such a voice in terms of storytelling and in narrative, and they can write. You know, they've mm-hmm. shown at some points in their career that they can write. I put him, uh, Soderbergh, in the same league as like a, a Scorsese, you know, just in terms of he can make these somewhat populist movies, but mm-hmm. also he can make movies that are, you know, very compact and that are more personal. <laughs> in a storytelling sense. Right. You know what I'm saying? And for Soderbergh, you know, you're, you're blowing my mind here. I didn't realize for some of those titles, you know, that he had done, you know, mm-hmm. things that I wouldn't have expected him to do. But with the limey, you know, it's like, that's his, that's his strength right there. You know, you can really feel mm-hmm. Soderbergh's voice, you know, present, just omnipresent throughout this whole movie. You know, and in a good way. It's not yeah. one of those directors where you can hear and you can see the uh, director's voice, but in a bad way, where right. the choices that they make are just like, no, that's you just, you know, being totally self-indulgent. There's no need for that. Right. Here, you don't get that sense. You get that everything is about the narrative, about the storytelling, and the little quirks, the little personal uh, quirks that he's found within the characters of the story that he wanted mm-hmm. to make shine. So, yeah, I, I think in that way, you, you can give him, you know, some credit as, as far as it being an auteur, you know, in terms of finding that voice, utilizing his voice, rather. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, if anyone hasn't seen The Lion Me, I highly recommend seeking it out. As do I, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great film, uh, and it's, you know, like Adrian said, there's hardly any fat left on it. And, uh, and it's a really great, outstanding performance by Terrence Stamp as the, uh, as the lead, along with a lot of the, uh, the other actors in the movie, uh, you know, who are, uh, who are supporting and wanted. So go check out the lineup. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Sidebar Forever is copyright 2020. Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson.